Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. In 2022, we are studying the Bible together through the lens of our theme, Life is a Garden. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. All right, so last week I was dealing with a bit of a cold. Thankfully, I feel a little bit better. But uh, today I'm dealing with the fact that yesterday spent about an hour playing basketball with a bunch of ninth grade boys and I am not as young as I used to be um, but that's okay uh, I may just I may not move around the stage as much today I'm just gonna stay in one place if this is your first time being with us uh, my name is Jeff I'm the lead minister here at New Garden and most weeks I have the privilege to stand up here and talk about God and Jesus and the Bible and today is no different we are in the middle of a year-long series called life is a garden where the plan is is to look at the different garden imagery and metaphors that are used throughout the Old and New Testament, and uh, and hopefully see how that relates to us, not only as a church, since we are New Garden Church, but in our day-to-day lives. Um, If you haven't been with us, or if you see something up on the screen today that you want to go back and study, just a reminder, you can find all of that on our website, newgarden.church slash 2022. so if you haven't been with us, we, we started in Genesis 1, verse 1, and we have been taking things a little slowly, just a little chunk at a time, because these are very familiar passages to us. I mean, most people, you know, a lot of people, they say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through the Bible this year. And they start in January, they start Genesis chapter 1, and they make it, you know, maybe a month or a couple months. And so it's, it's familiar territory. But sometimes it's become too familiar. And so we've been taking some time to slow down and see how things work together. Because if we get the beginning of the story right, in the right context, it will help inform the rest of the story. If we get the beginning of the story skewed, it will skew how we read everything else that is to come. So we start in Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at the first kind of creation narrative. And this is the summary we came to, that Genesis 1 through 2-3, paints a large-scale picture of God's establishment of cosmic order with his divine images who represent his rule so that the world becomes sacred space for his presence to dwell. It's as if Genesis chapter 1 is presenting this ideal situation of what God's desire looks like to bless humanity, that he creates a material world with material beings, but that his you know, spiritual presence is there so that like heaven and earth become one, one thing that can live together. And this is where the Garden of Eden is this, it's that picture of heaven and earth being in one space, both, you know, divine and material kind of coexisting um, with each other. That's the ideal. And, and so we, we looked at chapter two, that is kind of this, uh, another picture of God creating this garden, this perfect place. There's fruit trees everywhere. There's abundance. There's, there's no need uh, of worry. Um, there's no need of wondering where our next meal is coming from. How are we going to provide for ourselves, for our family? It's just, just fruit falls off the trees. Just go get it. 
And so God, he forms human, and then he takes a side of the human and forms this woman, and they're like, oh, this is awesome. We're together in this place, and God gives them this divine blessing to rule and to co-reign together, that they are partners in this with each other and with God to just spread this blessing, this divine abundance throughout the rest of the world, and to enjoy it for themselves. Um, But Yahweh, God, he gives the instruction of, hey, listen, there's plenty of stuff to choose from, and all of it is good, but there's this one tree that it's, it's like the knowledge of good and bad. Um, it's as if, if you make the decision to reach out and take it for yourself, you're making the decision of saying, okay, God, I'm no longer listening to you and how you define good and bad, but I'm going to step out on my own and define that for myself. And so we looked uh, last couple weeks about how the serpent comes in and deceives the woman and the man both to reaching out, taking this fruit that looks good, but ultimately is going to lead to death in, in, in no uncertain words. And so we've been working through humanity's created, man and woman are created, the dialogue between the snake, the woman and the man, they eat from the forbidden tree. Last week, we looked at the dialogue between God and the humans, how God shows up in this storm of a thunder, you know, and yet he is gentle in his questions. Um, he doesn't show up with judgment. He shows up inviting that relationship of what, who told you? What happened? Where are you? Um, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue this dialogue in the consequences for the snake and the man and the woman, or, and, and how the man and woman are going to be divided. And next week we'll look at how they are banished from the garden, and yet God still doesn't give up on them. Uh, actually, not next week. Michael's teaching next week in two weeks. So um, maybe some familiar uh, text for us. And what I do want you to pay attention to, a lot of times when we think of Genesis chapter 3 and God's um, conversation with the snake and the woman and the man, the word curse comes up. And it does. It comes up twice in this conversation between God and these beings. But I want you to think in your mind right now, who is cursed in Genesis chapter 3? Who receives the curse? Just in your mind, when you think about it, Maybe what you've heard or read or just think, you think, okay, who receives the curse from God in Genesis chapter 3? And then at the end, what I hope to do is just ask that question again. Now that we've slowly read through it, is that different? Is your answer different than what it is right now before we read it? Okay, so here is Genesis chapter 3. So again, just to set up, they have eaten from the tree, their eyes are opened, they've made, you know, clothing for themselves from leaves. They're hiding amongst the trees. God shows up and asks, where are you? They come out. We hid because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And they say, you know, the woman that you made, oh, the snake that you made, and they're, they're playing the blame game. And so this is what, uh, this is the next uh, verse. Verse 14, then Yahweh God said to the serpent, so he speaks to the serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock and more than any animal of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, of your offspring and her descendants. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to get into all of this, uh, but let's start up at the beginning. So cursed 
are you more than all the livestock? So if you, if you can remember, we talked about when the, the human and the woman are created, it says that um, they are a Rome. They're naked, a Rome, and not ashamed. And then the next verse introduces this serpent who is a room. He's wise. He's prudent. He, he has some sort of knowledge and how things work. And we've talked about how their aromeness is going to be affected by the serpent's aromeness. And it says that the serpent was more aroom than any beast of the field. Well, now in the Hebrew, it's saying because you have done this, now you are more arur than all the beasts of the field. It's this picture of what was set up as a wise, prudent um, serpent, maybe more blessed than all the other animals, now has fallen from that position and now he is more cursed. So he goes from a position of of possible wisdom to a position of just ultimate curse. You were, you were more arum, and now you are more arur. Okay, so here's, here's a, an excerpt from a book. Although it is assumed by all the English translations that arum has a negative sense, crafty, in Genesis 3.1, a closer examination suggests otherwise. The description of the serpent commences with its being more prudent, arum, than all the creatures of the field in 3.1. And having, after having tempted Eve, concludes with its being more cursed, arur, than all the creatures of the field. The two lines are nearly identical in Hebrew, suggesting an intentional contrast between them. The cursed serpent is a negative contrast to an initially positive, shrewd serpent. Not only does prudent make more sense of the narrative flow of events, it also distances God from any responsibility with respect to the origin of evil. God did not make a crafty creature. He made a wise creature. The serpent's prudence may even be a sign of God's special favor toward the serpent above the other animals. The serpent's decision to use its prudence for evil intentions, however, resulted in a fall from divine favor to eternal humiliation. And this offers a solution to the age-old question of the serpent's and Satan's fall. When did the serpent rebel and fall? It fell in Genesis 3. Thus, Genesis 3 depicts the fall of Adam and Eve and the serpent. So some interesting ideas here. And I think, I think he has some good points. The serpent is set up as this gift. He's been given the gift of wisdom and prudence, and he uses that gift for um, maybe selfish reasons or in rebellion of what God would want. And so we see both Adam and Eve fail the test, and maybe the serpent fell the test as well. So he is more cursed now. He's more arur than all the other livestock. On your belly you shall go dust, you shall eat. We kind of understand this picture, you know? Nobody likes to have their faces rubbed in the dust. It's humiliating, you know? It's, you, are, you are lower than everybody else, and this is your status from here on out. You are the, the lowest you can get. And then God says, I will make enemies or enmity, hostility between you, the snake, and the woman. And then I've highlighted two words here, because in the Hebrew, they're the same word. The translators of the NASB, they've, they've kind of tried to help us out 
by going ahead and translating the words in a way that they think um, it should read in English. But I think when they do that, they, they kind of narrow the meaning. And I think what, the, what God is trying to do is kind of widen the meaning and give us many possibilities. And so the word uh, that's highlighted offspring or descendant is the word seed, zera, seed. Um, and seed works pretty well in that you can have one seed or you can have like a bucket of seed. So it can be one or it can be many. Offspring, I think, works really well because we don't say offsprings, you know. You just have offspring, and then you have to define, is it one or is it many? And so I think if you read it, I'm going to put I'm gonna hostility between the snake and the woman, right? And so the picture is the woman and the snake, they're going to have this ongoing hostility between them. But then we're introduced to the, the woman is going to have offspring. And, you know, we think, okay, well, it's probably going to be more than one. And so there's this line of people that come out of the woman, and there's this seed of the snake. Now, I don't think we're talking about baby snakes. Right? I don't think there are a bunch of little baby snakes out there. But I think it's setting up a picture that, you know what, there are going to be people who choose to be a part of the family of the snake, who become the seed of the snake in the way they act and the decisions that they make. And I think this is the story of Cain and Abel that we read in the next chapter, that Cain, God warns him, listen, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must overcome it. It's as if Cain is, gets the decision, am I going to stay a seed of the woman, or am I going to trade families and become a seed of the snake and let sin overcome me? And so there's hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And, um, but then the writer singles out one of these seeds, right? He, one of the seeds, will bruise the head of the snake, and the snake will bruise the heel of this one seed. Now, again, some translations, they go ahead and fill that in, that um, the seed, he will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of this one seed. But again, the word is the same. It's shoof. So strike the head and strike the heel, bruise the head, bruise the heel. But the idea is if you bruise the head of a snake versus you bruise the heel of a person, they're different in you know, the, the outcome. And so, so we have this promise, this idea of, okay, listen, there's hostility. It's going to be between the woman and the snake, hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And you think about the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you know, are there people of different seeds, of different families that are always at conflict with one another? You've got Cain and Abel in conflict with one another. You've got the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac in conflict with one another. Um, you've got the, the Egyptians in conflict with the Israelites. You get to Moses. You've got the Le- Moses and Aaron and Miriam, the Levites, in conflict with the rest of the tribes. And so this is setting up a, a picture of the storyline that we are going to start reading. Um, but there's this promise of one of these seeds is not going to crush the seed of the snake, but ultimately is going to crush the, the head of the snake itself. And so it is, uh, you know, it's like, who is it going to be? And we've talked about this before. Is it going to be Cain? Definitely not Cain. Is it going to be Noah? Well, Noah does some good stuff, but then he does some bad stuff. Abraham, he's a mixed bag. Isaac is a mixed bag. And we're still, we're continually waiting for this 
seed who is going to ultimately crush the, the head of the snake. And, and one of the fulfillments of this is in Jesus, that Jesus is seed of the woman. He comes through uh, Eve and through Mary. He is a seed of the woman. And ultimately, through the cross he, uh, and his death and resurrection, he crushes the snake at its source. And then through him, he becomes the source of a new family, a new seed. And this, is, I think, is what Paul is, is writing when he writes to the Romans. He says, listen, I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, those people who divide. Because uh, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such people are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetite, and of their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For, I, for the report of your obedience has reached everyone. You're, you're different. You're not like those who are deceptive. They're seed of the snake. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. I want you to be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil or bad. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under y'all's feet. So it's a picture of Jesus as the ultimate one who crushes the head of the snake. But now this new body of Jesus' family can work together and the God of peace can unify them such that when they're working together and they are fighting the division and the um, deception of the enemy, that they also have the power to crush the snake at its source, to say no to the enemy. And what they're not crushing, they're not crushing the seed of the snake. Um, He would write to the Ephesians that, listen, our our fight is not with flesh and blood, but it's with the powers and the authorities and the princes of the air. It's it's this source that all these people are connected to. And so we we are never at war with another human. We are at war with the, the one who has deceived those humans. So the snake is cursed, right? Low, hostility, ultimately his death has been made certain. Now, the next few verses have caused so much uh, dialogue and controversy that we're going we're gonna to tackle them in the next seven minutes and 47 seconds. So to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to uh, the man, the human, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so I wanted to read both what he says to the woman and he says to the man, because they have connected words, okay? So let's go back to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply or increase your pain in childbirth. Now, there's just a couple issues with this, because um, I don't want us to think that our English translations can't be trusted. But they work in a community of other scholars and they all have their own little thing that they work on, and then they read each other's work. And then if there's any sort of like differences, they take a vote, and they say, which way are we going with this? And so awesome scholars work on this. But unfortunately, this has, this has been the traditional translation, and it has stuck with it 
But when you read it, it gives a very straightforward picture of things like that. Okay, it must have been in the garden when a woman would have a baby, there was little to no pain. But now, because of what they've done, having a baby is like horrendously hard and terrible and painful. The only problem with that is that the words used here don't relate to the birth of a child in the Hebrew. So your pain is the Hebrew, it's a, it's a bone, which means grief or pain or toil. It's the same word that's used to the man that you're going to increase the toil uh, of your work. And so it, his isn't related to childbirth. And this word that's translated childbirth is the Hebrew heroyon, which means conception, to, to uh, conceive or to become pregnant. And so if you just look for this word in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you've got it here in Genesis chapter 3 about childbirth. You've got it in Ruth chapter 13, and this is how it's translated there. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he had relations with her, and Yahweh enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So you see how the conception, the becoming pregnant, is separated from the actual birth of the child. Hosea 9, he's prophesying, he says, As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. So again, here's that same word that's used. And then that's the only time that word is used in that form, but the root word is used about 60 times in the Old Testament. And every time, it's not translated as to birth a child, but to conceive a child. But here's just one example that we're going to read in the very next two verses, chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've obtained a male child with the help of Yahweh. So again, there's a separation between the conception, becoming pregnant, and the actual birth of the child. And so maybe a, a more true translation is something like, I will greatly multiply your grief in becoming pregnant. I'll greatly multiply the toil in conceiving a child. And again, I don't think it's necessary. It could be a judgment. I mean, God is saying, I will do this. But I think what a better way of relating is, is God knows he's about to exile them out of the garden to the place where thorns and thistles grow, the place where there is division and dissension amongst the ranks. And he knows when I send you out there, the, the fight over conceiving a child is going to become greater. And then he goes on to say, in pain, this is the, another Hebrew word, etseb, which means sorrow, hardship. Um, in pain, you shall deliver children. Now, this is the Hebrew word, yalad, to actually bring forth children. And there's a, a guy named Ian Pravon who um, wrote a great paper about this. And so I'm going to use some of his language. So the word etseb, pain, is used of emotional pain and the pain involved in work. It can also be used of a more generalized kind of pain. It is never used elsewhere in the Old Testament, however, to refer to labor pain or birth pain. Conversely, there is a well-established vocabulary which is routinely used in labor pain. So there are or Kebel, and cool. if we take our lead from the meaning of Etzeb elsewhere in the Old Testament, Genesis 3.16 refers to the agony, hardship, worry, 
and anxiety of the circumstances in which children are conceived, born and raised, and in which they die. This is the same word's clear meaning when describing the man's work in the field in the very next verse. And so <clears throat> if we put this, this picture together, um, I think it, it becomes clearer that this is, again, talking about all the stories that we are about to read in the rest of Genesis. Are there any stories in the book of Genesis where a woman has hardship or trouble conceiving a child? Are there, are there any stories in Genesis where the man and the woman have a tension over, give me a child. I, I can't give, how, you know, take my servant and do that. And that leads to more tension between them. Like, yeah, like every story in Genesis, this is exactly what happened. And so um, another, another quote, so the man's fate matches the woman. He will know grievous toil at Seb as she does. Here it certainly refers to a challenging economic circumstances as the man is locked in a struggle with the land, hoping through painful toil to grow sufficient green plants in the midst of thorns and thistles to survive. The work done in the field corresponds to the work done at home. Notice that the woman's at Seb, pain, is said to increase, not to begin. The man is not only in a struggle with the land, but Genesis 3.16 tells us that he's also locked in a struggle with his spouse. Men and women are created to work and rule in partnership, but now the man relates to the woman as if she were a part of the creation rather than a co-ruler over creation with the man. And she, for her part, is not portrayed as blameless in this increased dysfunctionality in male-female relations. Intended for partnership, they will in fact find themselves embroiled in a struggle for dominance. This is why family life will be more painful for the woman. Dysfunction now marks not only the human relationship with God and with the land, but also with each other. The remainder of the book of Genesis powerfully illustrated this dysfunction and the sorrow that it brings. So I skipped over the, that last little thing. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So again, there's about four different ways to read this, but I think the, the clearest is to read it as a negative thing because none of this is positive, but it's a negative thing. It's as if the woman has this desire to get the, get the man to do what she wants, yet the man will just rule over her. And so again, you think about the rest of the book of Genesis. Are there tensions between a husband and a wife over how they're going to accomplish things and how often will a man just uh, initiate dominance over the female in all of these situations? You're like every story in the Bible. So we continue. So to the man, to the human, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Again, with it's a bone, that, that same pain, toil, grief, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. So again, your current environment has always been this garden where you barely have to do anything and just life is multiplied. You just pick fruit off the trees. You have no worry about how you're going to feed your family, how you're going to feed your wife, how you're going to feed your possible children, you know, like it's just this worry-free environment. But now you're going to go out into the world where you're, you're going to try and plant something good and thorns and thistles are just going to be the natural outcome of it. 
And it's not fruit that you just get to pick off the tree and eat. You are going to have to grow something and then take that something and turn it into something else, bread, for you to eat. And so the work of this is multiplied and the outcome is diminished. It's not like when we go to the peach orchard and we just show up with our wagon, you know, and we just pick peaches uh, and we just like fill it. And it's like we look at one and like that one's not good. I'll just get another one, you know, and, and it's, it's abundant. Now that breaks down because somebody else had to put the work in. But this is the picture that now I go out and I plant stuff and just it doesn't grow or it grows and it's smaller than it's supposed to be. It, it doesn't, the work I put in is not reflected by the outcome. And God is saying, this is the painful toil of the life that you're about to experience outside of the garden. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. And you know what? All this work is going to break you down into dust. These are the consequences. And this is kind of the, this is the storyline of the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. Humans, stupidity, and rebellion versus God's ultimate desire to bless. Because even in the midst of all of these consequences, it's like God laments of like, we had it good here. And because of your decision, listen, you're facing the consequences of your decision. This is how it's going to be. Even in the midst of those consequences, God still gives a ray of hope. You know, that Genesis 3.15 of, listen, there's going to be hostility, but there will be a day when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Restoration will happen. God is going to exile them out of the garden, and yet he's going to provide for them. He's going to continue that, that desire of a relationship, that God's ultimate desire is to bless to be in a relationship with us. And every day, I mean, this is the story of our lives. How often do we ignore that and go out and try and find something good on our own, but what we find is rotten and, and dust. And so every week we just were reminded of a God who has who's come and has provided a way back into that garden, back into that partnership, that relationship, so that now... You know what? This I don't think Genesis three sixteen is a uh, is a forever curse. This is how men and women will always relate to each other. This is how husbands and wives will will always relate to one another. It is a picture of how a, a man and a woman will relate to each other when they're each reaching for the tree to define what's good and evil in their own eyes. But I think God continues to call and to give example to to men and women and say, listen, if you go into this relationship submitting to one another out of love, just like Christ loved the church, like that that is a picture of a a re-entry into the garden. And this isn't a sermon on marriage, but I I think it's just important because for so long I've been taught, these verses are how it it is and how how God wants it. It's like, these are the consequences of people's dumb decisions. How God wants it is, is for humans to relate to one another with, you know, with our own, with no shame. Just being in partnership with one another in love and, you know, no judgment and in partnership with God. And so each week we go to a table and it reminds us of this partnership, this new covenant that we are a part of the new seed of Jesus, that we have been engrafted into the family of Jesus and that through Jesus, we together can crush 
the head of the serpent, when we bond together to the unity of the Spirit. So we've got three tables, two in the front, one in the back. Um, and each week we take the bread to remember Jesus' body broken for us. We take the cup to remember that blood of the new covenant. And um, if there's you know, anybody in here who's, who hasn't made that leap into the family of God, uh, I'd love to talk to you. Because it's the hope of eternal life that we can experience now. So let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll kind of dismiss to the table for a few minutes and then continue in song. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even though we make dumb decisions and we often turn our backs on you, you do not turn your back on us. That you say, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. That when we dedicate our lives to you through faith and belief in Jesus Christ, that we are a part of your family, adopted children, heirs of the promise, um, those who get to inherit the blessing. And I just pray that every day we, re- we remember who we are and whose we are. And as we take the bread and we take the cup today, let us celebrate how you have redeemed us. That we are children of God. And it's through the name of Jesus we're able to pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's go to the table together. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.